second Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 26, verse 69 to 75. You can find it in some of the Pew Bibles, page um, 1041. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a serpent girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is God's word. Uh, thank you. It's uh, good to be here. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Chris, as John said. Um, Ruth and the kids and I have been at Surrey Hills for about five weeks now, and we've been really enjoying our time here and slowly getting to know more and more of you. But if I don't know you yet, come and find me after the service and, and get to know me. Uh, well, let's uh, pray as we get ready to listen to God's word. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a good God, that you want to communicate to us, and that you do this in your word. Father, as we come to your word now, help me in my weakness to speak it faithfully and truthfully and clearly. And Father, I pray that we would be humble uh, to receive your word by faith, and that you would encourage us as we read it, uh, to look at the glory of the Lord Jesus and his love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, I would invite you to come back in time with me uh, to the moment I first experienced the temptation to deny my faith in Jesus. Uh, the year was 1996, and I was in my grade 6 class in Bort Primary School, uh, working on a, a group project with some other boys in the classroom. Now, a few moments earlier, one of the kids in my group had somehow discovered that my family went to church on Sundays, which was true. Now, he reasoned if I was someone who went to church on Sundays, well, that probably means I'm someone who, you know, loves God likes Jesus and probably reads the Bible, which was also true. Needless to say, this kid felt he had some material to work with. So without further ado, he began calling me Bible Boy. And it wasn't long before the other boys in the group started following suit. 
Bible boy, Bible boy, Bible boy. Well, in that moment, my heart started to race. I was feeling increasingly uh, threatened and embarrassed about what was happening, thinking, what do I do? What do I say when all of a sudden, my grade six teacher, having heard the commotion in the corner of the room, suddenly yells out, you boys in the corner, knock it off. If Christopher wants to read the Bible in his own private time, that is fine. (laughs) Now, although my teacher had good intentions, her public statement now meant the entire class was aware of my Bible boy ways. (laughs) Panic was growing. Stress levels were increasing. And I couldn't stand it any longer. And so in front of everyone, I blurted out, it's not true, I don't read the Bible, I don't know what everyone's talking about. Well, eventually the Bible boy chanting petered out. But what remained in me was a sense of personal shame. You see, even as a grade six boy, I knew I had lied about my allegiance to the Lord Jesus to get out of an uncomfortable situation, and I hated that feeling. Now, I was only in grade six and felt that kind of shame. But imagine if I had done the same thing as an adult who had seen the Lord Jesus in the flesh, eaten with him, seen his miracles, someone that the Lord Jesus considered to be a close personal friend, how much worse might the sense of shame be then? Well, in our passage tonight, we get a picture of that level of shame. In Peter's failure, we get a confronting reminder of the shame of denying the one who would deny himself for us. So what we'll do is look at each of Peter's denials here and then think about the implications this account has for us. So where are we up to in Matthew 26? Well, we've been here in the last number of weeks. By now, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He's been deserted by his disciples. And he's been condemned to death by the corrupt religious rulers of his day, which we saw last week. Now, you might recall that just before Jesus was arrested, he had actually told his disciples that they would all abandon him during his hour of need, verse 31. And you might recall that while all the disciples protested that they would never do such a cowardly thing, it was Peter who promised above all, ultimate loyalty to Jesus, even if everyone else wimped out. Remember what he said, verse 33? Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Now, in fairness to Peter, he actually had shown some amount of loyalty following that statement. You see, it was Peter who 
had leaped to Jesus' defense with his sword, you might remember, to defend him in the face of an angry mob at Gethsemane. It was Peter who had followed Jesus right into the courtyard of the high priest when most of the other disciples had, at this point, gone into hiding. But how does Peter's loyalty hold up when he hears from that courtyard the resounding consensus of the authorities around Jesus inside the building? You remember what the consensus was? Verse 66, he is worthy of death. And how does Peter's loyalty hold up when he hears the sounds of fists hitting Jesus' face? When he hears the laughter of those spitting on his master and mocking him? Isn't this the moment when true loyalty is going to be revealed? Well, let's see what actually happens. Let's consider Peter's first denial. Uh, Peter's first denial comes in the form of a cowardly lie. You see, this lie, this first denial uh, of Jesus, doesn't come in response to pressure from the temple authorities or a scary band of soldiers or an intimidating chief priest. No, Peter first denies Christ before a mere servant girl who simply asks him and him alone whether he was with Jesus. Look at verses 69 and 70. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Uh, I love watching crime drama series, and almost without exception, the line, I don't know what you're talking about, is the first line you'll hear from someone who is hiding something when the detectives first bring them in for questioning. You see, it's a line designed to keep things general, far off by avoiding the actual specifics of the question, which in this case is Jesus, isn't it? You see, notice how Peter doesn't even want to speak about Jesus specifically. He simply pleads general ignorance. Why, well, I have no idea what you're even talking about. Now, this is pretty shameful, because remember, just hours beforehand, Peter had boldly stated that he was even prepared to die with Jesus. But when the first moment of testing really comes, it's actually cowardice, not courage, that wins the day. And Peter begins on his journey of denying the one who denies himself. But look, maybe, maybe that first denial was a bit of a slip-up. It happens to us all, right? Maybe Peter was just taken off guard by that random girl who just comes out of nowhere. Well, sadly, perhaps another moment of testing would actually reveal his true, uh, his true loyalty. Well, sadly, in Peter's second denial, we see a consistent 
an increasingly specific denial of the man Jesus. You see, the heat of the situation has just been turned up. Just like my grade six class, where it went from one kid chanting Bible boy to a group of kids chanting Bible boy, in Peter's case, where we see the first servant girl asking him a relatively gentle and private question, the situation increases, the heat turns up, where we see the next servant girl making a loaded statement, an accusation against him publicly. But yet again, instead of rising to the challenge, Peter's shameful denial of Jesus also ratchets up a degree. You see, this time, Peter doesn't just claim a general ignorance of the topic. This time, with an oath, that is, by invoking the name of God, Peter denies knowing the man in question. Look at verses 71 and 72. Then he went out to the gateway, where another girl saw him, and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. You can imagine the scene at this point. Well, Peter's clearly felt uncomfortable and somewhat threatened by the question of the first servant girl. So he moves away from the courtyard where the heat is to the gate. A new group of people, hopefully a safer place. But then another annoying servant girl pops out of nowhere again. Wait, aren't you... Hey, everybody, this guy was with Jesus of Nazareth. I imagine fear, anxiety, self-preservation kick in again in Peter here. Whoa, everyone, look, as God is my witness, I don't know the man. Where is Peter's courage Where is his loyalty at this point? Because again, wasn't he willing to die with Jesus? I wonder if you're feeling the failure and shame of Peter at this moment in the the text. You see, imagine if, if Peter had responded to the girl's accusation by saying something like this. Well, you know what? Actually, yes. Yes, I was with Jesus, and I know him well. In fact, I've seen him control the wind and the waves. I've seen him cast out demons. I've seen him heal the sick. I've even seen him raise the dead to life. So yes, I'm not ashamed to say that I know him, because you know what? Even if those crooks in there do end up killing him, I know that he's going to raise again to life, like he said he will. So I'm going to stick with Jesus. Imagine if Peter had said that. But he didn't, did he? Instead, to his shame, Peter denies knowing Jesus. In fact, you'll notice here 
that Peter doesn't even give Jesus the dignity of a name. You see, Peter had once so rightly called Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. But now all Jesus is to Peter is just simply the man who he knows nothing about, just some guy. And so we see it again. Peter denies the one who denies himself. But it gets worse. You see, not only is Peter's denial of Jesus cowardly, proving to be consistent, his third denial is completely condemning. Uh, This third moment of shame is brought on by a bystander or a couple of bystanders in the crowd, drawing a connection between Peter's Galilean accents and Jesus, who was known to have spent a lot of time in the area of Galilee. Uh, I don't know what it was about Peter's accent that gave him away. Maybe he said castle instead of the proper Jerusalem way of castle. Whatever it was, though, it was enough to make some in the crowd question once more Jesus' allegiance, Peter's allegiance and connections to Jesus. Now, for me, back in grade six, it was that exposing moment when my teacher talked about me reading the Bible in front of the entire class that made me crack. Well, for Peter... It was this third moment of interrogation, this third question that really sets him off. Uh, We've seen that Peter's denials have been getting increasingly more emphatic, more desperate, but by this stage, it's off the chart. You see, by calling down curses on himself, Peter is effectively saying... May God curse and condemn me if what I'm saying to you guys is a lie. In his blind desperation to rid himself of any association with Jesus, Peter is even prepared to put himself under God's wrath. Now, I think that level of denial is breathtaking. Look at verses 73 and 74. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know the man. Uh, Peter had promised breathtaking loyalty to Jesus, but delivered breathtaking treachery. Uh, We all know those ugly moments in politics where politicians claim loyalty to the leader, only to drop that leader like a hot potato when public opinion swings in a negative direction. But you see, this is a thousand times more condemning. Because Jesus wasn't just some flawed political leader. 
He was and is the perfect king. And you actually see that quite clearly when you contrast Peter's actions under the interrogation of a couple of servant girls and some crowd members. If you contrast that with Jesus' actions under the interrogation of the intimidating religious rulers. You see, where Peter denies Jesus to save himself, Jesus denies himself to save the likes of Peter. Now, that's a good king, isn't it? The initial self-confidence Peter had during the Passover meal has now just descended into a pathetic display of self-condemning denial. And it's only when the rooster crows that Peter sees his shame for what it is. Look at verse 75. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Imagine being in Peter's shoes at that moment and seeing with dreadful clarity everything you had just done to your Lord. He can't go back. He can't go back in time and take it back. All he can do here at this point is weep over his shame of denying the one who in that same moment was denying himself before the religious authorities. Peter's betrayal of Jesus was cowardly, consistent and condemning. And I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, it's just hard not to feel just yuck and terrible after reading it, when you see what happens here. But this isn't just a story for us to read, to understand, and to feel bad about. It's actually a story that teaches us something as well. So what are we to take away from all of this? Uh, Well, I've got two points to share with you tonight. The first is, don't be like Peter. And the second is, be like Peter. Now, you might be thinking, why on earth would I want to be like Peter? And I'll explain that, but let's consider that first point of application. Don't be like Peter. Don't follow him into the bitter shame of denying the one who denied himself for you. You see, there are going to be moments uh, in your life where you, like Peter, will be tempted to hide, to minimize, or to just flat out lie about your identity as a follower of Jesus. I think in Australia, these moments come about in ordinary ways. They come about in something like a job interview. When you're kind of tempted to hide your Christianity for the sake of improving your chances at getting the job. These moments come about when there's a boy or a girl that you're finding yourself attracted to 
who's not yet a Christian, and you're hesitant to actually be honest about how much Jesus is part of your life. These moments come about simply in those kind of awkward conversations in which your classmates or your workmates start, you know, making comments and criticising religion or the church or even Jesus himself, kind of thinking, what do I say now? You see, in, in these moments, our human instinct is to often deny or, or shy away from Jesus in some way to avoid the discomfort of it all. But we have to train ourselves so that our natural instinct is to say what Peter should have said, I know Jesus, I know him, and I love him. We have to train ourselves to think in those moments, there's no shame in knowing the Lord Jesus. He's the king of the universe that loved me so much that he took those fists in the face, that he stood there while he was being spat on and laughed at. He's the one who endured death for me, but was raised with power to bring me life. Uh, My daughter, Camille, and I were driving to a daddy-daughter kinder evening a couple of nights ago. And as we are driving there, I was thinking, hmm, this is probably going to be an event where I'll be meeting a number of other dads from my community. And I was thinking, am I ready to be honest about my love for the Lord Jesus when some of these dads ask the inevitable question, you know, what do you do for a job? Oh, what made you do that? Or could I see myself becoming a bit timid in that moment. Wanting to stick to the sort of safe topics of conversation that don't make me look too much like a complete Jesus nut. And yeah, I could actually see myself doing that. I'm capable of that. I'm capable of shying away. So I thought in that moment, I better pray. And we did. In the car on the way, I prayed with Cammie that we would remember all that Christ has done for us and that he would help us by his spirit in that coming moment not to deny the one who denied himself for us. And you see, I think part of my training from now on is praying that prayer on a more regular basis. Second point of application is be like Peter. Now, why the heck would I encourage you to be like this guy? After everything that I've just said, well, I don't know if you were wondering as you read this passage how it was that Matthew, the author, actually knows this event happened. I mean, how could Matthew know? He wasn't there. 
In fact, none of the other gospel writers, and this is in all four of them, were with Peter in the specific moments of all this happening. So how, can we, how have we even come to know this shameful story of Peter? Well, the only answer is that Peter told it to his brothers himself and insisted that it be put in each of the Gospels. Now, that Peter was humble enough to do that tells us that he came to embrace two key truths that everyone needs to embrace if we're going to come into the kingdom of King Jesus. First key truth that Peter came to embrace was that he was weak, fallen, sinful. He owned up to his shame before God and was actually okay with every future reader of the Gospels seeing it. Second key truth that Peter came to embrace was the power of Jesus to remove even his shame. You see, Peter went on to witness both the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in found in these things, the means by which he could be forgiven and restored, his shame removed. He came to see that Jesus had actually endured the shame of the cross to forgive him of the shame of his denial. And it was actually Jesus himself who let Peter know that his shame had been removed. Uh, In John 21, the passage that was read out a bit earlier in the service, we see in that passage the Lord Jesus seeking Peter out on the beach. He clearly forgives him, removes his shame, and reinstates him as leader of the early church, and then tells him once again, follow me. Even though Peter had been ashamed of Jesus, Jesus wasn't ashamed of Peter. And realising that totally transformed Peter from this point forward. And I think you see that most clearly in one particular account in the book of Acts. The next instance where you see Peter come again under pressure to remain loyal to Jesus. So in Acts chapter 4, Peter is hauled before the religious authorities. What was his crime? He healed a man in Jesus' name. But you see, in this moment of testing, where he's standing before those religious rulers, this time Peter declares, this time Peter, this time Jesus isn't just some guy to Peter that he's prepared to fob off. This time Peter declares before the highest court in the land that salvation is found in no other name but Jesus. Acts 4.12 Knowing that Jesus removes your shame is life-transforming. Peter learnt the hard way that people enter into Jesus' kingdom on their knees. 
recognizing the shame of their sin and weakness and embracing Jesus as the one who willingly removes that shame through his own death and resurrection. That's the Peter that we need to be like. Because the truth is, we've all failed Jesus in some way. In one way or another, we've failed him, we've been embarrassed by him, we've ignored him, completely rejected him in some ways. And perhaps there are some of you here this evening who who feel that shame in a particularly bitter way tonight, like Peter did at the end of this passage. Well, we need to be like Peter, and in the shame of our sin, turn to the one who will not be ashamed of us. By his death and resurrection, Jesus removes your shame and welcomes you into his kingdom. Nothing else will remove the shame of sin. Only Jesus. So, the Apostle Peter, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wanted this story to go into Scripture. And as I've thought about that fact uh, throughout this week, I've kind of been imagining what the conversation between Peter... And Matthew, the author, would have been like uh, as Matthew came to this section, as he was writing it. See, I imagine Peter said something like this. Uh, Matthew, I know you're about to hit that section of Jesus' life where he's about to go to the cross. And I want you to know that what I've told you about, that I did, was shameful and wrong. But I've come to realise now just how powerful Jesus is to forgive sins because he removed my shame of that moment. So, Matthew, I don't want you to sugarcoat that account when you come to it. I don't want you to make it look like a minor slip-up I want you to write it down in all its gritty detail so that when people in future generations see the shame of my act, well, they'll see the glory of Jesus' act on the cross all the more. I pray that we will see Jesus' glory all the more in this account tonight. And then as we leave here later on, that we will do so with a renewed passion to deny ourselves and be faithful to the one who denied himself for us. Let's pray.